I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, John. Hi, John. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Today is a bittersweet day as we reach the end of our favorite month of the year and our final February flop. It is. And this is the week where we get to talk about a show where it was a flop and undeniably a flop, but it's a flop that at least to me is, is near and dear to my heart. Yeah. It's a flop that, uh, in spite of its commercial failings initially is a show we love. And what show is that, John? So this week we are talking about Candide with music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics, buckle up, by Richard Wilbur, John Latouche, Dorothy Parker, Lillian Hellman, Leonard Bernstein, Felicia Bernstein, and Stephen Sondheim. With an original book by Lillian Hellman, which was then later revised by Richard Wilbur, all of this is based on the novella Candide by Voltaire. Candide opened on December 1st, 1956 at the Martin Beck Theater and played 73 performances before closing on February 2nd, 1957. Candide was directed by Tyrone Guthrie with choreography by Wallace Siebert and Anna Sokolow. The music direction was by Samuel Kramalchnik. The original Broadway cast included Max Adrian as Voltaire and Dr. Pangloss, Robert Runzenville as Candide, Barbara Cook as Cunegonde, Ira Patina as The Old Lady, and Louis Edmonds as Maximilian. Candide was nominated for five Tony Awards, but did not win any. In the country of Westphalia, Candide is about to be married to the lovely Cunegonde. Dr. Pangloss, Candide's teacher, expounds his famous philosophy that all is for the best. The happy couple sings their marriage duet, and the ceremony is about to take place when war breaks out between Westphalia and Hesse. Westphalia is destroyed, and Cunegonde is seemingly killed. Candide takes solace in the Panglossian doctrine and leaves Westphalia. In the public square of Lisbon, Casmira, a deranged mystic in the caravan of a conjurer predicts dire happenings, leaving the crowd terrified. Candide finds Dr. Pangloss alive, but the doctor has contracted syphilis, yet remains optimistic. Agents of the Spanish Inquisition appear, and many citizens are tried and sentenced to hang, including Candide and Dr. Pangloss. Suddenly, an earthquake occurs, killing Dr. Pangloss for real this time, and Candide barely escapes. Candide, faced with the loss of both Cunegonde and Dr. Pangloss, starts out for Paris. He is unable to reconcile Dr. Pangloss's ideas with the bitter events that have occurred, but concludes that the fault must lie within himself rather than the philosophy of optimism. Cunegonde turns up alive in Paris in a house shared by a marquis and a sultan. A party is in progress. Urged by the old lady who serves as her chaperone, Cunegonde arrays herself in her jewels. Candide stumbles into the scene and is amazed to find Cunegonde still alive. In a duel, he kills both the Marquis and the Sultan and flees with Cunegonde, accompanied by the old lady. 
The trio falls in with a band of devout pilgrims on their way to the new world. Arriving in Buenos Aires, the group is brought to the governor's palace, where Maximilian is alive and working for the governor, and where all except Cunegonda and the old lady are immediately enslaved. A street cleaner appears, warning Candide of the future. Candide and Maximilian are joyfully reunited, but when Candide states his intentions to marry Cunegonda, Maximilian starts to strike him with a glove. Candide starts to strike him back, but before he actually does, Maximilian drops, apparently dead. The governor serenades Cunegonda, and she, aided by the old lady, agrees to live in the palace. The old lady urges Candide to flee, but Candide, entranced by the reports of El Dorado from the street cleaner, sets off to seek his fortune, planning to return for Cunegonda later. Act 2 opens in the heat of Buenos Aires, where Cunegonda, the old lady, and the governor display their fraying nerves. The governor resolves to get rid of the tiresome ladies. Candide returns from El Dorado, his pockets full of gold, and searches for Cunegonda. The governor, however, has had both Cunegonda and the old lady tied up in sacks and carried to a boat in the harbor. He tells Candide that the women have sailed for Europe, and Candide eagerly purchases a leaky ship from the governor and dashes off. As the governor and his suite watch from his terrace, the ship with Candide casts off and almost immediately sinks. Candide has been rescued from the ship and is floating about the ocean on a raft. A sailor is devoured by a shark, but Dr. Pangloss miraculously reappears. Candide is overjoyed to find his old teacher, and Pangloss sets about repairing the damage done to his philosophy by Candide's experiences. In a luxurious palazzo of Venice, Cunegonde turns up as a scrub woman and the old lady as a woman of fashion, both working as shills for Ferroni, the owner of a gambling hall. Candide and Dr. Pangloss, both wearing masks, appear and are caught up by the merriment, the wine, and the gambling. Candide is accosted by a masked Cunegonde and old lady who try to steal his remaining gold. But Candide recognizes Cunegonde when her mask falls off. His last hopes and dreams shattered, he drops the money at her feet and leaves. Cunegonde and the old lady are fired by Ferroni, and Pangloss is now penniless, having been completely swindled out of all of his money. With Candide now completely disillusioned, he and Pangloss return to the ruined Westphalia. Cunegonde, Maximilian, minus his teeth, and the old lady appear, and within them, a spark of optimism still flickers. Candide, however, has had enough of the foolish Panglossian ideal and tells them all that the only way to live is to try to make some sense of life. Okay. So, yes, once again, this is, so this is the third Bernstein show we're talking about, and, well, much more West Side Story notwithstanding, like On the Town, this is an incredibly convoluted plot. Not so much their fault as it is Voltaire's fault this time, because this is actually a faithful retelling of the Voltaire novella, um, which I had to read in high school and remember thinking, who likes this? Obviously, some people did because it got turned into this. Originally premiered on Broadway, but 
is actually labeled by Bernstein as an operetta. And it's actually interesting because now in, in, in current times, this show has actually found kind of a second life within various opera halls. And actually, one of the things we're going to get into is this show has undergone a million revisions, like to the nth degree. And the most popular version now is actually called the Scottish Opera version, which was a revision done by Bernstein right before he died and was actually recorded in Scotland. And so hence has become the Scottish Opera version. And that's the the version that most people actually do nowadays. Yeah, I've certainly never seen a theater company endeavor to take this on only only opera companies and quite frankly listening to it it's hard to picture this on a broadway stage it just you know west side story on the town those sound like musicals this show sounds much more like an opera than it does a musical oh and i mean hands down i mean when you think about kind of the 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 signature songs from this show uh glitter and be gay candide's lament make our garden grow these are they're i mean for lack of a better term they're operatic numbers that there's just no two ways about it there is very little dialogue in this show. I don't think there's actually a single book scene at all, which, I mean, again, to be fair, is labeled an operetta, but Bernstein also consciously premiered this on the Broadway stage. This is not a, you know, one of those, well, it was written for opera, but kind of co-opted by Broadway and mistaken identity and all that. It was very consciously premiered for the Broadway stage. Do you think that's because that's where he could get a premiere? Very possibly. I mean, we're talking about 1956. So we're, we're right around, right before the time of West Side Story. Bernstein at this, I mean, at this point, I feel like Bernstein was a name. I find it difficult to believe that had he written this as a straight up opera and, and taken it somewhere that somewhere would not have performed it. Like, I feel like the, the myth, the pedestal of Bernstein was enough at this point that had he taken to the, to the New York city opera, had he maybe not necessarily the Met, but had he taken this to an opera house, he could have gotten a performance done. I think he very consciously decided to put this on Broadway. To be fair, I want to love this show. I love this music. And I mean, we've made no secret on this show, this being the third Bernstein show we've talked about, that I am an unashamed and unabashed Bernstein fanboy. I I think he does very little wrong. And I that is the hill I will die on. This show suffers from an excess of everything. It's just too much. Just hands down, it's just too much. Yeah, I mean, so I I have never seen this show in person. I've listened to it and I've seen, there's a a well-known concert version of this show that's circulating in the world. It's confusing. It's hard to follow. And as we've already discussed, the book has been written and rewritten a million times. And so it's also difficult from a production point of view 
to know what you should do. And it also, because it has been written and rewritten, I think when people go to produce it, they think, well, I can make changes. And then, you know, you have people who maybe aren't as brilliant as uh, its original creators making changes. And it's just, uh, it's a show that has suffered throughout its history, regrettably so, because there is some truly wonderful music in this show. I mean, Glitter and Be Gay is a spectacular song. It's a showpiece, is what it is. Of course, I think we've mentioned in the past on this podcast, but you and I both love the overture to this piece. Well, the overture to, I mean, the overture to this piece is iconic. It is one of those pieces that bridges the classical pops divide. And you will see the overture to Candide on classical concerts. You will see it on pops concerts. It, it is so well-known, it is so beloved that it fits just about anywhere you want to put it. But let's take a second and just talk a little bit about the revision process. So originally, the, the original credits were lyrics by John Wilbur and John Latouche and book by Lillian Hellman. Well, kind of like some of the other shows we've talked about during February Flops, as things did not go well, they brought more and more people on. And so additional lyricists were brought in, various revisions, even after the show closed, uh, Bernstein and Hellman were determined to, to make this show work. So they kept working on it. And then they, you know, Dorothy Parker was brought in, Leonard Bernstein himself wrote some lyrics along with Felicia Bernstein, his wife, um, even Stephen Sondheim. And he wasn't actually, it's funny because, so this was very, very early in Stephen Sondheim's career. This is pre-West Side Story, which is one of his first major credits. And for the longest time, Sondheim was not actually credited with any of the lyrics in this show. But as the revisions have gone on and he added more and more to it, eventually he got a lyric credit added to this show because he ended up adding so much um so we're now three or four revisions in with Lillian Hellman they actually decide to basically start over Richard Wilbur takes the plot points as set by Voltaire and Lillian Hellman and writes a completely new book also mixed success there are major problems with this book and Richard Wilbur himself does several revisions of his book up until the aforementioned uh, Scottish opera version, which has been labeled the, the definitive edition by the Bernstein estate and Bernstein himself said, okay, this is where I want this show to be and then promptly died. So the Scottish opera version was actually recorded in... 1989 and then he died in 1990 so this was actually one of the the final projects he worked on uh before his passing so whether it is the definitive version or not whether he you know he decided that was it or not up in the air you know i mean we we, we don't know had he lived another 10 years if there would have been another revision this show is just one of those things, ultimately, that the 
parts are fantastic. And we've talked about with other shows about how shows are the sum of their parts, or in some cases, some shows are better than the sum of its parts. This one is kind of the opposite. The music is fantastic, but the music doesn't save this show. It is an incredibly mediocre show with just some brilliant music in it. Which is so fascinating to think because, as we mentioned earlier, there isn't that much show. Like, there isn't that much book in this show. It's mostly music. It's mostly songs. It's mostly lyrics. And it's really kind of the lyrics that I think, you know, outside of the songs that are spectacular songs, the way the story is told throughout this show is just exceptionally difficult to follow. Like if you just listen to like any one of the numerous cast albums that exist of this show, which are going to be incomplete and just kind of move through the highlights and you don't know what the plot of this show is, it is genuinely impossible to understand what the story is that these people go through. And, and let's be fair. I mean, the show doesn't even necessarily end. It just kind of stops. Now that to be fair is a Voltaire problem and not a Bernstein problem. That is how, I mean, but you know what, actually thinking about it, it just kind of, it, it struck me that the thought kind of coalesced together. It kind of is a Bernstein problem in the sense that this property follows the Voltaire novella to a fault. And as a consequence, the faults of the book become the faults of the show. Well, and to, to pull it out even further, much like my criticism last week, uh, he decided to turn this into an operetta, an opera musical, whatever you want to call it. You know, Flaherty and Aaron signed on to do Rocky the musical. It's not like you just agreed to do it without knowing what the property was. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, Bernstein was fastidious and in well known for only writing. He was not a commercial composer. He wrote things only that he wanted to write, and and that was it. So he wanted to write this. This was this was him driving in with both feet, knowing exactly what he was doing. And unfortunately, it's it's a bit of a a miss. Again, beautiful music, but not a compelling show. Not I would I mean even go as far as say maybe not even an enjoyable show. Hmm. I don't know. I think it has an audience. I mean, it must have an audience. People are still doing it. It it is something that you see annually somewhere in the country, Uh, particularly young artist programs really like to do this show. That's, that's fair. Um, And maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it has merit as a training piece. You know, I mean, and, and there are pieces like that out there, pieces that you do that are kind of benchmarks for the development of young singers and actors. Um, in this case, opera, um, on the opera side as opposed to the Broadway side. Maybe that's what we're seeing here, that this is this is a good training piece. This is a good performance piece for for performing for developing performing artists and not necessarily something that should be seen as a pinnacle of the art form 
Oh no, I think that's where we're going to end up. I think Candide is is uh, is his greatest work, bar none. Yeah, I'm going to have to fight you on that. Like, <laughs> literally, I'm going to have to drive to where you are and physically fight you on that. Because how dare you? How how dare you? And second of all, how dare you? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I like I said, it, 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 I've said many times, I am an unabashed Bernstein fanboy. Even I can recognize when things are not brilliant. And while the music in this show is brilliant, the show itself ultimately fails. But that being said, there are bits and pieces, if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, that you should check out. As we've said, the overture is phenomenal. You can find many different recordings and many different performances, though, of course, if you can find one with the man himself conducting, it's always going to be uh, kind of the best it can be. And uh, I know, John, you're going to have a recommendation for a version that they should listen to here in a second. But I'm going to also say that if you're just wanting to get a little taste of this, if you don't know anything about Candide, uh, go find the Kristen Chenoweth performance of Glitter and Be Gay. I know maybe a controversial actress to pick, but I think that her her rendition of Glitter and Be Gay is really, really spectacular. It's available on YouTube and it is, uh, I think, thoroughly enjoyable. Oh, absolutely. Actually, that's going to be one of the recordings I recommend. So there is a recording with the New York Philharmonic with Marin Alsop recording, and she was uh, a protege of Bernstein. So it's it's actually a really well-informed performance with Kristen Chenoweth as Kunaganda. Definitely worth checking out. There is also the Scottish, what is called the Scottish Opera House version, which was recorded in the UK in 1989 with Bernstein conducting that again, hands down, wonderful, wonderful recording. And if you're really morbidly curious, the original Broadway cast recording of this is interesting to check out for history's sake, to kind of hear where it started and, and, and hear the changes. So, you know, it's worth a listen for 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 that. I mean, I, I'm not going to- Barbara Cook. Oh yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Barbara Cook is, is, is glorious and Barbara Cook will always be glorious, but yeah, if, if you only have time for one, listen to the New York Phil with Kristen Chenoweth. If you have time for two, listen to that and the Scottish Opera House. If you have three, go ahead, add in the Broadway original cast as well. If you have time for three listenings of this piece, maybe go take a walk. Go get some fresh air. (laughs) Check in on your mental health. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.